So we have been, man, we've been seeing how there's two kinds of people in this world. Is Proverbs, is Proverbs a gift to us or what? I feel like Proverbs is aimed right at young people. And my only regret here is that in, in a couple of days, we only get to look at a few verses. I feel like we could, we could open up to any chapter of Proverbs. And we could spend half the day going through and finding wisdom from the Lord for us. And the Lord's been helping us. He's been showing us how there's these two kinds of people in this world. There are the wise and there are fools. And it's the fear of the Lord that makes all the difference. And I hope by now you're starting to get some picture from God's Word of what wisdom is worth. Today we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 4. So you can open up your Bibles to chapter 4 of the book of Proverbs. While you're turning there, I'm going to tell you, I used to live in northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. We would go down to Washington, D.C. fairly often. People would come to town. They'd want to see something. They'd want to see the White House. They'd want to see the Smithsonian. And all those trips down there past the White House, I developed this sort of fascination with the Secret Service. You know who the Secret Service are? These guys that are assigned to protect the president. They're always, you see them sort of in the background of the pictures, the dark suits, the dark sunglasses. They're always talking in their sleeve real sneaky-like. I, I got so into this that I, I got a book a few years back by a guy named Joseph Petro called Standing Next to History. And this guy was a Secret Service agent for decades. He served under five different presidents. And there's all these pictures of him with, with Reagan, with Bush, with the other Bush, and he's, he's right there with the president. Five different presidents. And he explains in this book that there's a myth about the Secret Service. He says there's a myth out there. People think that Secret Service agents are required to take a vow that they will step in front of a bullet for the president. And he says, you know what? There is no vow. The job is not to take a bullet for the president. Like, oh, he says, actually, the job is to do everything possible and everything necessary to never be in a position that you would have to take a bullet for the president. <laughs> the job of the Secret Service is to be very careful about where the president goes. Who gets near him? They plan out a schedule. They plan out routes. They plan out contingency plans if things go wrong. They are as prepared for every possible threat as they could be. They do as much work as is humanly possible to protect the president from harm. And this morning, we're going to look at one verse. I'm going to read a couple of verses, but we're going to focus on one verse that calls Christians to a secret service-like watchfulness I want to look at Proverbs 4 we're going to start reading in verse 20 and we're going to focus on verse 23 follow along with me Proverbs 4 verses 20 through 23 it says my son be attentive to my words incline your ear to my sayings let them not escape from your sight keep them within your heart for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Now verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow springs of life. Let's pray, then we'll go on. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We will have many memories from this time together, but what will last, what will change our lives, what will stick with us and shape who we are and who we will be is your word. So this morning, make us attentive to your word. Overcome our fatigue and our thoughts of traveling home, our memories of everything that's happened so far. And in this moment, let us focus on what you say to us in your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen. So our calling, friends, our calling is not to protect the president, not to protect a VIP. We are called to protect our hearts. The point here of this verse is if the Secret Service will spend so much money and expend so much energy and effort to protect the president, how can we not exert that kind of effort to protect ourselves from the very real dangers that confront us in a hostile world? This verse has a very simple command in it. It's this, keep your heart with all vigilance. I think the New International Version translates it, above all else, guard your heart. If you want to be wise, if you don't want to be a fool, if you don't want to lose what you have gained at advance, you will learn to keep your heart with all vigilance. It's a very simple phrase, but there is even more at stake here than the national security of protecting a president. We need to think carefully here about every word. This command starts with the word keep, to keep. When we use the word keep, we usually mean like, hey, don't lose this. Don't give this thing away. Don't let it get away. But this word here is stronger. I think we get closer to the idea if maybe your parents say to you, keep an eye on your younger sister. But that's still too casual because... When, I, when my parents told me to keep an eye on my younger sister, that usually meant sitting in front of the TV, and I don't know what she was doing. So that's not really maybe the best picture. Older siblings, you know what I'm talking about there. The idea here is to watch over, to guard. And like I said, the NIV puts it that way, guard your heart. If any of you have read Lord of the Rings or Narnia or any other book that describes ancient medieval castles, you might know that at the center of a king's castle was the keep. One dictionary says that the keep is the strongest or central tower of a castle, acting as a final refuge. And that's the idea behind this word, that when you want to protect something at all costs, no matter how severe the onslaught or how desperate the defense, you keep it. You fall back and you say, whatever else I do, this is my final stand. And so what is it we're supposed to keep? What are you supposed to keep? Keep your heart. Keep your heart. And I think we all have a pretty good idea of what he means by this. He's not talking about the little fist-sized organ in your chest that moves blood around your body, although it is important to take care of that. Eat your heart-healthy omelet every day or whatever it is you need to do. What he's talking about, though, is something more than the physical organ in your chest. I'm going to give you a, a technical word here. A fancy philosophical term that you can use at lunch to impress your friends. 
What we need here is called a biblical anthropology. Some of you guys are like, dude, <laughs> it's, it's early in the morning. What are we talking about? Anthropology means the study of people. What are we like? What are we made of? What do we consist of? A biblical anthropology. That's what, what does the Bible say that people are like? That's all we're talking about here. And what the Bible says that people are like is that there are two parts of you, right? There is the physical part of you. You have a body. And this is pretty obvious. You have, you have arms and legs. You have skin. You have limbs and organs. You have toes and fingernails and teeth. And many of you have hair. And <laughs> Right? So you have the, there's this physical part of you that you can see and you can touch and you can feel. You have senses. But there's also a non-physical part of you. Have you ever thought about this? There, there's a part of you that you can't like, locate on a little chart of a human body. right? You have thoughts. You have feelings. Where does laughter come from? What is it exactly that makes you cry? All right? Now, some scientists, if they're Darwinists or something, they're going to try to tell you, look, you're just some kind of bag of chemicals. This is all just a reaction that's calculated to extend the life of the human species and blah, blah, blah. That's not true. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, no, there's a physical part of you and there's a non-physical part of you. There is your body and there is your soul. Sometimes we call that your spirit. There are these two parts of you. Your heart is your thinking, right? So, so in the, we usually think of thinking as like going on in the brain, and I'm sure it does. But when the, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about all of this non-physical part of you. It's your thinking, right? It's your feeling, all of your emotions, your joy and dread, grief, anxiety, hope, all of that. That's all part of your heart. It's your desires. In the Bible, your heart is also, what is it you want? What do you long for? What do you look forward to? That's part of your heart. It's your motives. Why do you do the things you do? You see what I'm saying? You can't go into the doctor's office and, you know, as you're waiting for the doctor to come in on the, on the back of the door, they have like a close-up of the ear. And you're like, yeah, your eardrum. And look at this is the eyeball. There's your iris and that sort of thing. Where, where's my feelings in that? No, that's, that's not how it works. This, this immaterial, this non-physical part of you. The heart, so the heart is the non-physical part of you, according to the Bible. The heart is the real There's a physical part of you that's walking and talking, you're doing things, you're playing games, you're cheering because Fuji won, and we can see all that, but there's this non-physical part of you that we can't see as easily. We see the outworkings of it, we see you expressing yourself, but that's the real you, and the heart is the most important part of you because it's the real you. You can go through life with this physical part of you and put on a good show. You can show up at church and look pretty good. You can raise your hands. You can sing. You can serve. You can greet people well. You can look them in the eye. Good, firm handshake. People think, yeah, he seems to be doing pretty good. Yeah, she's a sweet girl. She's growing. You can, outwardly, you can make it look like there's something that there's not. But inwardly, you might be longing to be out from under the constraints of obedience to your parents. You might be longing for worldliness, to associate with, with, other, with, with friends, to, to have your freedom and independence to do what you want. And so this non-physical part of you, there could be a disconnect between how the, 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 the physical and the non-physical part of you appears to people. We call that hypocrisy. 
That's why the non-physical, the, the, the heart, that's why the heart is the most important part of you. So you have a heart, and we're told to keep it, and we're told how to keep it. Keep it with all vigilance. I love that word, vigilance. It's like a, it's just a strong word. It's about watchfulness and attentiveness. Imagine a sentry on a wall. Imagine a lookout on top of a mast of an old sailing ship. Imagine a pioneer squinting at the horizon on alert against any incoming attack. The idea of a watchman is that it's his responsibility to sound the alarm. In many parts of the ancient world, if a watchman dozed off and fell asleep and got caught asleep on the job, the penalty could be death because you jeopardize the safety of the entire community or the entire army. That's why the verse here uses this phrase, all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance. And this is a funny phrase. You could translate it almost like this. You could almost say, keep, uh, you could say, you say like, guard your heart with all guarding. There's these two words there. They're two different words that mean the same thing and they're mashed together. Guard your heart with all guarding. Every possible way that you could guard your heart, guard it like that. All the different kinds of guarding there are, guard it like that. Be vigilant and attentive. Be watchful. And this is the kind of urgency then, the reason the NIV says, above all else, whatever else you do, of all the things you could do in this world, you could get a good education, you could keep track of the news, you could encourage other people, you could devote yourself to minimizing world hunger, you could try to become a scientist who's going to who's going to end COVID or cancer or anything else. No, above all else, of all the things in the world that you could do, this is the thing that King Solomon wants us to do. Keep your heart with all vigilance. So we're commanded to keep and guard our hearts with this kind of attentiveness of a secret service agent, always alert to incoming threats. And the second half of this verse gives the reason. Why is this so important? Maybe you think, yeah, your heart is just, it's there. I mean, I can, you might be thinking, there, there's some of you who might be thinking, yeah, I can go along with this for now, and I'm biding my time. Man, soon I'm going to be in college, and then I can do what I really want to do. And I know there's some of you out there because that's the way I kind of went through my time in youth ministry. It's like, man, I just can't wait until I can do what I want to do. And here's the reason this is so important. Maybe you think, look, I just want to have my fun and experience some things and travel some and do some stuff, and then I'll get serious about this later on. You hear these testimonies, like, yeah, there's people who, man, they, got, they, were, they started getting serious about Jesus like in their mid-20s. I got time. I can wait on this. No, here's the reason for this command. Here's why you need to take this command seriously, whether you are 12 or 16, or 20, or 43. Here's the reason. The second half of the verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This little word for is really important. It means that we're about to be told the reason for something. 
We're about to be told the reason you should keep your heart, the reason you should be a secret service agent with your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. So when we think about what sustains life, we we just talked about how there's this physical part of you and this non-physical part of you, and you you probably think of life, you think, well, what do you need for life? You need oxygen, you got to breathe. You know, water, you're only going to make it a, a day or two without water. You got to drink, you got to eat. You can't, not going to make it more than a few days or a week or something without eating. You're going to starve. You probably need some shelter. You can't be getting rained on all the time. You need, you know, you need relationships. So you kind of work your way through that spectrum. What do I need for life? No, he's talking about a different kind of life. Just like we talked about body and soul or body and spirit. He's talking about spiritual life. From your heart flow the springs of life. His point is that there is a kind of life that comes out of the inner, unseen, non-physical part of you. And that's important. There's a, the physical part of you interacts with the physical part of the world. You have eyeballs that see the world. You have ears that hear me talking right now. My hands, I can touch stuff. But the non-physical, the spiritual part of you interacts with the spiritual world. Interacts with God Himself. God is a spirit. You need the spiritual life within to have a relationship with God who is a spirit. And just like the body, bodies can be dead or alive. Thank God you are all, all these bodies in front of me right now are alive. But these bodies can die. They eventually will die unless the Lord comes back first. Just like these bodies can be dead or alive, souls can be dead or alive. And there are the walking dead. There are bodies that are alive with souls that are dead. Honestly, I, I think this is why people have this fascination with zombie movies. I feel like I might have said this last year, but I have this theory that, that people get into things like zombie movies because they have, they have enough of the image of God in them left to recognize there's something true about that. I think zombie movies are really stupid. I don't even, I've never even really seen a zombie movie, but I think the idea is stupid. But, but what it is actually is this faint picture of some biblical truth that there are the walking dead out there. There are people whose bodies are alive, but whose souls are dead. So from the heart flow the springs of life. We need to guard these hearts with vigilance because this is what will keep us from being spiritual zombies. The life of the soul, this inner and truest you, this life comes from your heart. It's not talking about physical life. This isn't something that can be measured with an EKG or with an Apple watch. He means the eternal life, a response to Jesus. There's eternal life the life that Jesus gives, that doesn't start in our hearts. That comes from outside of us, right? Eternal life that Jesus gives is a gift. It comes from outside of us, and it awakens spiritual life within our souls. It gives us then the capacity, the ability to know and to relate to God. I love that this imagery is a spring. I was in the woods recently, and I came across a spring. There is just this little hole in the ground, like this big, and water was just literally bubbling out of it and trickling down the way. And it's just flowing. It's, I don't, it's one of those, it's like a mystery. You don't know where it comes from. How does, it, how does this work? The Lord just made this out of, out of the ground, water. It's cool. 
Water just bubbles up out of the ground all the time, flowing, always fresh. But the springs that are in our hearts need some maintenance. These springs need to be guarded. They need to be kept. They need to be watched over because the spring that is in your heart, the spring of spiritual life, it can be polluted. Did you know that? The spring of spiritual life that comes from your heart could be polluted by pornography, by flirting, by immoral relationships, by greed, by gluttony, by envy. There are all sorts of impurities that can pollute this spring. Maybe you know what idolatry is. Idolatry is when we love something more than God. When we desire our own reputation or ease or pleasure. Anything more than we desire God. A desire for relationships. A longing for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. The desire to, to just enter in and play with the fun of flirting. The, the, the game of trying to get attention and win somebody's affection. All of that can pollute this spring. Lust and pornography pollute this spring. And if this spring is polluted, our hearts become muddy and it keeps us from being able to have a pure and right relationship with God. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you maybe know different ways that the, the springs of your soul are polluted and and you find you sit down and you want to read your Bible. Or you want to sing. You see others around you who seem very excited to sing. And it just feels flat and dead. It's two-dimensional. It's just like, there's nothing here. I don't get excited about this. Well, that might be. It might be because the springs of your heart are polluted. And you need to ask God's forgiveness. And repent. This spring can also be diverted. The springs of our hearts can be diverted away. So they can be polluted, they can be diverted. When I was a kid, one of the houses we lived in was on a hill, and when it rained, we would go play in the ditch in the front yard and pile up sticks and rocks and mud and stuff and try to make the water go the other way. We would send the water way out into the middle of the street, and the ditch would actually dry up downstream from where the water was supposed to go. And just like that, the, the, the streams of our hearts can be diverted. We can be distracted we can be turned aside from spiritual life and this happens with the distractions of social media the distractions of entertainment even the distractions of technology if you have a phone and you feel that impulse if you ever find yourself just pulling your phone out of your pocket for no good reason you're just standing in line you're like i don't really I'm not even really looking at anything. I don't know. I already know what the weather's going to be today. I know I don't have any emails. There's no little red circle by my text messages. I just, I, I just, I just feel like I should just look at my phone. It's just what I do. It's, I'm in line. It's red light. This conversation's boring. Um, it's all a diversion. It's a distraction. That could be a moment you could be, you could be praying. That could be a moment you could be reviewing and memorizing a Bible verse. That could be a moment in the car you could be taking an interest in a family member. And asking questions like, what have you read lately? How, Mom, Dad, how can I learn from you? How can I do better? Son, daughter, let's grow together. Those are moments where, where we, can, we can grow our spiritual life. That we could strengthen the, the flow of life, of spiritual life from the stream rather than be diverted. Entertainment is a big one for teenagers. 
This is about the movies or the shows you watch, the books you read, the video games you play, the videos you watch online. Do your entertainment choices take your mind away from God? Or maybe it's like this. Maybe for you, it's not so much that, it's not so much that the stuff that you watch is just really bad. Right? Maybe you say, yeah, no, we, you know, we, um, we're careful. You know, we mute it when there's bad words and we skip over immoral sex scenes or something like that. Okay, fine. But is it that you just take it all in? It's just you're just passive and it's just coming in. It's just coming at you. You never stop and think, wait, what is this movie trying to get me to believe about how the world works? About who good guys are and who bad guys are and what makes them good and what makes them bad? Those are ways that you're Spiritual life can be diverted. And so what about social media? Is there an urgency for you in that? I know not everybody here is on social media, and if you're not, well, glory to God, you're not missing much. Um, but maybe for you, there's an urgency to it. And how eager are you to be the first one to like a friend's post or picture or video or whatever it is? How often do you check to see how many likes or comments your post or picture or video or whatever has gotten? How many times a day, how much, how much time a day do you spend just scrolling through? Just not really doing anything, just, just scrolling through and looking. All of that is a distraction. All of that keeps us from growing in our love for Jesus Christ. Growing in our knowledge of Him and our relationship with Him. So this spring can be polluted. This spring can be diverted. Spring can also be stopped up. You can plug it so that it stops flowing all together. You can do that through hypocrisy. You can do that through a hard heart. You can do that through ignoring your conscience. If you are comfortable with sin, if you hide sin, if you don't confess sin, if you, if you play with sin and you think, yeah, you know what, i got this under control. Nobody's getting hurt by this. I can stop this. I, I'm not owned by this thing. You are in danger of stopping up the spring of spiritual life in your heart. If that spring is not flowing for you, then there is no relationship with God. There are decisions that you might be making right now that are stopping up the spring of spiritual life in your heart. And here's why this matters. The only real relationship with God that is possible comes from the spiritual life within. There is no checklist of outward stuff you can do that will make up for not having this spiritual life within. There's not enough serving, not enough Bible reading, not enough prayer that if you just do this thinking, I look like a Christian, so I must be a Christian, there has to be spiritual life from within. John Piper has a book called A Hunger for God, and he says, he says it like this, this is this is eye-opening. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of His love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not His enemies, but His gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. 
For when these replace an appetite for God Himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Now look, what he's not saying is that you should become a hermit and that you should give up. You shouldn't eat apple pie. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you should give up the joy and the pleasures that he's given us as, as gifts. But what he's saying is that we should not treasure those things more than Jesus Christ. He's saying that the, the, the joys that are available to us in this world need to be in their proper place. That if they need to help us be a springboard for us into love for Jesus. Then he goes on and he explains. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, that's a, that's a chunky phrase. How about this? If you don't feel strong desires to know and love Jesus Christ more, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God, and it can be awakened. That's why we come to advance. So that that appetite for God, that appetite within you to know Jesus Christ could be awakened. You know what appetite is. We've been playing games. You run you guys are hustling out in the heat and the dust. You're getting stuff done. You're getting all the marks on your arm. And we finish and you are thirsty and you are hungry. You know what that feels like. You know what it feels like to have physical hunger and physical thirst. Young people, do you know what it feels like to have spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst for Jesus? Many of you do. Many of you do. And if you don't, I think John Piper would encourage you to ask yourself, what are you nibbling on? What are the lesser things that you are satisfied with? What are the, what are the trivialities of life that you've been focused on that have kept you from knowing and loving Jesus Christ, that have kept you from having real spiritual hunger and thirst that can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is steak. You know what I mean by that? Satisfying. Delicious. Smells good, tastes good. All this world has to offer, it's cotton candy. Have you ever eaten cotton candy? It's the weirdest stuff in the world. You grab a whole huge handful of it, you stuff it in your mouth, and in two seconds, you're like, all I got left is this weird residue, and my mouth turned blue. Um, it just disappears. It vanishes. It's gone. Whoever ate cotton candy and thought, yeah, I'm not hungry. I don't need dinner. I'm good. That's not how it works. That's what this world is like. Everything that this world has to offer is cotton candy. Everything that's out there, everything that young people or old people long for in this world that we think, oh man, if I, if I only had, if I only could get, whether for you that's relationships or good grades or a better time, in the cross-country race. Or whether for you that's the safety and security of money, if it's comfort and ease, if you thought, if I could just kick back and rest, if I could just do what I want to do, if I didn't have to get up this time, if I, man, if I had a friendship that was just so perfect, well, all those things would be fine and wonderful if they were received in the service of Jesus Christ. But if you were looking to those things to satisfy you, it's cotton candy. Come and have a meal 
Come and find steak for your soul. Jesus Christ will fill you and will nourish you and will satisfy you. But the thing about love for Jesus Christ is that as you are satisfied in Him, you want more. You think, that was delicious. That was worth pursuing. That was worth giving my life for. Jesus said that is the kind of relationship that He came to give. John 4. You remember the story in John 4 when Jesus meets the woman at the well? They have this kind of meandering conversation where she keeps trying to dodge the spiritual truth that He's talking about. and She doesn't really get it. She doesn't understand what this imagery of water is about. In John 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, listen, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Become in him. Does that sound like Proverbs 4.23? That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What will happen? He will never be thirsty. He's not saying you'll never desire Jesus Christ again. He's saying you will never be thirsty for the, the trivialities, the petty, small little things, the cotton candy of this world. That won't satisfy you ever again. Only Jesus will. John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give this spiritual life. The eternal life of salvation and the spiritual life of knowing Him from the heart. Do you have this life? Do you have it in your heart? Why would you die when life is available to you? What relationship on earth, what possession on earth, what experience on earth could be possibly worth missing this life for? If you don't have the spring of life in your heart, you can have it today. What repentance does? Listen, if you are not a Christian, and some of you here, I know this is a group big enough, there's some of you here who have been putting off a real commitment to Jesus. I'm just not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm there. Listen, repentance, to turn away from sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ turns on the flow of living water from your heart. This is how spiritual life will begin. Maybe, I hope that you have looked around you at some point these last couple days and noticed the joy and the peace, the happiness, the excitement to know Jesus that is around you. That's available to you. Whatever it is for you that would pollute and divert and stop up this spring, you can turn your back on that. You can turn away from that. That's called repentance. And you can put your faith in Jesus alone for eternal salvation. And if you are a Christian and you say, well, yeah, I don't know, this spring, it is struggling because I've been struggling with sin. Well, you're also called to repentance. Stop struggling. That's not repentance. Repentance is to turn away. Tell your parents if you need to confess your sin to them and to turn away from that and start a new direction. You can and you will find that this spiritual life, if it's only a trickle, this spring for you is just a, a few drops at a time it will turn into a torrent of love for God. 
We turn away from sin to Jesus Christ. Sometimes people think, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, yeah, that's a good idea. I should do that. I'm going to stop sinning and I'm just going to obey. I'm just going to go straight to, you know, I'm going to do this. And they try to muscle it up. And that's not repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin to Jesus Christ. Turning away from sin to the greater treasure of Jesus to come and drink at that well. To say to him, you are all I want. That will lead to obedience. If you have genuinely done that, then you will want to obey and follow his word. But you've got to have Jesus in there. You can't just go, all right, sin, no, no, now I'm just going to turn around and I'm just going to do this good thing instead. Come to Jesus. Ask his forgiveness. Ask for his help. Ask for his presence and his nearness. You know what? Those are prayers the Lord loves to answer. And God's not like this stingy God. He's like, ah, yeah, here's like some, some parent, some grandparent. I'm like, yeah, here's a dollar bill. Don't spend it all in one place. Um, he throws open the doors of storehouses of, of, of good things because he loves his children. There's a commentator, a theologian named Derek Kidner. He, he, he says what this is like. He says, look, the approach here, the approach of Proverbs 4.23 is positive. The teacher is far less interested in don'ts. Don't you feel like sometimes people talk about the Christian life as don'ts? Sometimes that happens. But that's not actually the view of the Bible. I mean, there's, there's things you're, you know, there are Ten Commandments. There are things you're not supposed to do. But here he's far less interested in don'ts, though they have their place, than in getting his student to see that he has offered the secret of being really alive. And therefore cooperate by cultivating his own love of the wisdom which is that secret. Do you want to be really alive? Keep your heart. Keep it with all vigilance. And listen, many of you, I've been talking for a few minutes to, to some who are not Christians, but many of you are Christians. And, and I want to say something to you. I've been to enough retreats. I've been to enough advances i've been to two of them i've been to i've been to a lot of these kinds of things and i know that man we're here and we're stoked we're fired up and fuji won and we've had great we've had we've had sermons we've had conversations with parents we've had singing we've had real fellowship and it's man you just think this is so great i don't even want this to end i can't believe it's over so fast and you know what happens this afternoon we drive back to real life and the excitement, the freshness of God's Word, the joy that you feel in singing here, is that going to last for you? Well, it can. Here's how. Keep your heart with all vigilance. These are words that will extend the experience of advance and make this not just a kind of a weekend that's a happy memory, but a way of life. To, to cherish God's Word in the way that we do here. To, to sing with, with gusto and with joy at the top of our lungs so that by the end our voices are all raw and scratchy. To care about others. To experience joy in one another's presence and the, the, the happiness and delight of fellowship. That can go on. That doesn't have to be a three-day thing off in the mountains once a year. How does it be a way of life? Keep your heart with all vigilance. If advance has served you, if you have gotten something good 
out of the sermons or out of the singing or out of the fellowship, and you want to keep growing and to keep going deeper into this, if you feel greater love for Jesus Christ right now than you did 48 hours ago, and you don't want to just slouch back into the way things were before, well, here's what to do. Guard your heart. Keep your heart. Keep watch. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Be attentive. Protect this spring of life that is in there and help it grow. This spring of living water that is in your heart is a precious gift. If you have this gift and you see it for what it is, you will guard it. You will get your secret service on and post a guard around it. And as you do, you will have a real and a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Before we go, let's bring this all together. Let's think about what we've seen while we've been here. There are two kinds of people in this world, right? There are the wise and there are the fools. If you want to be wise and not a fool, the key is to learn the fear of the Lord. For young people, the fear of the Lord is about knowing Jesus Christ, and you learn to do that by honoring your parents, by listening to their instruction, by submitting to their authority and following their example. But there's another kind of fear out there. There's fear of the Lord, but there's also the fear of man. And it's a, it's a danger. It's an impediment. It's an obstacle to the fear of the Lord because it is a snare. And it can trap our hearts. When people are big and God is small, you can have an excessive concern for what other people think that can keep you from the fear of the Lord. But you can learn the kind of wisdom that resists the fear of man by building around you a community of wisdom. The wisdom that's out there can rub off on you. You can gain wisdom by being around the right kinds of companions. Parents, the right kinds of friends, the right kinds of books and movies and music that will fan into flame the fire of love for Jesus Christ. And once you have that wisdom, you can guard it and protect it so that the spring of spiritual life that is in your heart continues to grow and satisfy your soul for the rest of your life. If we can boil it down to this one idea, I would come back to where we started. There are two kinds of people in this world. The wise and the fools. Those who make Jesus Christ their treasure, they are the wise. Those who run after other gods, they are the fools. Which are you and which will you be? One last quotation for you. The Father in Proverbs demands an extreme separation from the wrong way and an extreme commitment to the right path. There is no third way. Friends, as we go out from here, you're going to choose how you're going to live. What are you going to be? Who are you going to become? Are you going to have an extreme commitment to the right path? Are you going to find your way towards extreme separation from the wrong way? I pray that as we go out here, you will leave with that commitment, that iron-clad desire to know Jesus and to treasure Him above all else. That is the way of wisdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can call you Father. We call you Father because you have brought us near. And we pray that you will help us to know wisdom.
and to grow in wisdom. Help us to be wise. I pray for these young people that You will put in their hearts a hunger for true wisdom that is a hunger to know and to love and to treasure Jesus Christ above all else. Father, as we leave here today, I pray that we would leave as changed people. That we would go home. That Your Word will leave a mark on our souls. That it will transform our priorities and our desires. Our thoughts and our feelings. Our words and our actions. Let us not be content to live as we did before. To live half-hearted lives. To live lives that nibble at the table of the world. Lives that are satisfied with cotton candy. Let us instead love and treasure Jesus above all else. Father, we pray that You would use this time here to bear good fruit for years to come in the lives of teens and parents and their relationships with one another and with You. And we pray all this in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen.